0: Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free.
1: Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel. And how are you today, Bran? I'm well, and you? I'm doing great. Doing great. So what do you have in store for us today? Well...
0: I've been lecturing earlier this morning to a Hispanic human rights organization, a Christian Hispanic human rights organization, talking about critical race theory and trying to demonstrate to them that, well, critical race theory is presented as though it is the answer to racism and to oppression and to the violation of people's rights. In fact, critical race theory really flies in the whole face of human rights because it treats people not as individuals with God-given rights, but as identity groups. And so we'll be talking about critical race theory today, but before we do, I thought I'd talk about something else that I've been working on at the Foundation's offices. Yesterday, I finished my portion of a legal brief in a case right now. The state of Tennessee and 19 other states, through their attorneys general, are suing the U.S. Department of Education, because the U.S. Department of Education is trying to impose a rule on public schools all around this nation, requiring that they honor whatever gender preference, quote-unquote, that kids want to identify for themselves, that they always address kids, and teachers, and others too, everybody used to be addressed by their preferred pronouns. If I was born a male, but I wanted to be addressed as she and her and so on, everybody needs to address me that way. Anyway, this is a regulation that the Department of Education has put into effect and is trying to impose on public schools all across the country. Well, 19 states, or I'm sorry, 20 states, through their state attorneys general, have filed a lawsuit challenging this federal order. They're saying that it exceeds all federal power in this area. Even the Civil Rights Act and so on do not talk about gender identification and the like as being a protected class here or a requirement that schools follow that and the way they address people and so on. They're also saying that this violates the comment rule. There's a federal statute that says any time a federal department is going to adopt a certain type of regulation, it has to place it online and allow the public an opportunity to comment. And commonly, when there is something of some controversy that a federal department is trying to adopt, they'll put it online like this. And... There'll probably be hundreds of comments from individuals and organizations, some supporting and some opposing it. Well, we believe they were required to do so in the adoption of this regulation, and they did not do so. And anyway, so these 20 states have sued the federal government over this. A federal district court has issued a preliminary injunction in favor of the states in this, and. The Biden administration has appealed that injunction to the Sixth Circuit, and so we are filing a brief in support of the state attorneys general and the states in their position. Part of what we're arguing here is that in addition to our belief that there is no federal authority for this, in fact, we would go a step beyond probably what even the court would be willing to say on this and that is that there is no constitutional authority for the federal government to be involved in education whatsoever, with the exception of military training. But they're probably not going to go that far, but nevertheless we think this goes way beyond what they are authorized to do. And we agree with the state attorneys general about the comment rule that this has been violated. But in addition to that, one of the things you do when you're filing an amicus or friend of the court brief is you try to bring out some issues on behalf of certain parties that may not be parties to the case itself, but may nevertheless be affected by the decision. Because we believe the court should be aware that their decision will affect people in certain ways, even if those are not parties to the case itself. And so... What we have argued in our brief is the way this affects parents, the way it affects school children, the way it affects teachers. There are gonna be a lot of teachers who don't wanna be addressed by anything but their biological pronoun and don't wanna have to address others in a way that violates their beliefs and staff and others like this. And so we are bringing our amicus brief arguing their position. One of the first things we're arguing here is that you are compelling people to say something they don't want to say. And the compelled speech doctrine has been recognized for the last several decades as a recognition that, just like the First Amendment guarantees that you have a right to say what you want to say, it also guarantees that you should not be forced to say something that you do not want to say. A couple examples were the West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett case in the 1940s, where we had a case of students who objected to having to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, this case did not deal with whether the schools can have the Pledge of Allegiance, only whether they can force unwilling students to say it. And In Virginia, West Virginia wanted to force all students to say the pledge. And the Supreme Court said these students object and they object on religious grounds, but it could have been other grounds as well to having to say the pledge and forcing them to say something and affirm something that they do not believe is a violation of their free speech rights. I'd say also their free exercise of religion rights as well, but this is being talked of primarily in a free speech context. Likewise, you had a Jehovah's Witness in the state of New Hampshire. New Hampshire has a state motto, live, free, or die, that appears on New Hampshire state license plates. And anyway, the Jehovah's Witness in this case, cases Maynard versus Woolley, or I'm sorry, Woolley versus Maynard, he didn't want to display this, because that implies fighting for your country, and as a Jehovah's Witness, he is against participation in war. So he wanted to mask that off his license plate. And the state prosecuted him for not having a proper license plate with that masked out, and the Supreme Court again said that this is compelled speech, forcing somebody to say something that they don't want to say, is compelled speech and so they said that he was allowed to put tape over that portion of the license plate so long as the rest of it was all very clearly visible. We had the NIFLA case just a couple of years ago out of California where California had adopted a rule that all clinics like save a life clinics and crisis pregnancy clinics and so on that do not provide for abortions, have to prominently display on their walls a message about where they can get abortion counseling and where they can be referred for an abortion. Well, these clinics did not want to display this. They objected and sued the California Attorney General over this, and anyway, the Supreme Court again ruled in favor of the clinics, saying they should not have to display a message that. They have strong objections to displaying. Well, the same is true in this case. What this rule effectively does is it forces children and teachers and others to address others by the pronouns that those others have said we want to be addressed by. And one of the things we say in our brief is it is one thing to claim the right to be able to identify yourself by whatever gender you want to identify by. If you were born a male, but you want to call yourself a woman, that's one thing. But to require everybody else to address you as a woman, that's something else, especially if they don't want to for whatever reason. And some might not want to because it just is offensive to them. Others might not want to because they think, This is simply untrue, biologically he's still a man. Others might object for religious reasons, saying God has made us male and female, and males are not to become females, and females are not to become males, and there is to be a clear distinction between the sexes, and that particular student or teacher was given a sexual identity at conception, Was conceived a male or a female, and the fact that he now chooses to call himself a female, or even if he has taken some hormones, or even if he's gone through some surgery. The fact is, his DNA is still male DNA, and God's designation of that person as a male still stands. Anyway, so it violates his religious beliefs to force him to identify this other person as a woman when in fact God has made that person a man. So we're saying that this regulation violates the free speech and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. It likewise would force the states to violate the provisions of their own state constitutions guaranteeing freedom of religion. We also note that out of these 20 states that have challenged this regulation, 15 of them have what we call Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, or acts similar to that, acts that provide that anytime the state substantially burdens their free exercise of religion, they have to show that they have a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by any less restrictive means or else they, they can't be allowed to burden somebody's free exercise of religion in that way. Fifteen states have that provision, either in their state statutes or their state constitution, and this is forcing those states to violate their own state constitutions. Anyway, so we have made this argument, and I should say we are making this argument. I just finished my portion of the brief, and the brief will be filed probably early next week. But anyway, this will go up to the Sixth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. That's kind of the... Tennessee, Kentucky, and some of the, I think Ohio, and a couple of those states are in the Sixth Circuit. We'll see what the Sixth Circuit does, and from there it may go up to the Supreme Court. But that's one of the things that we're working on right now. And it's interesting that one of the things that sometimes when you're dealing with this identification, so on, like that, one of the things that's happening we find is that If kids think the truth is so subjective that I can define my own existence any way I want to define it, and I want to call myself a girl, even though biologically I'm a boy, whether or not I've made the changes in my anatomy or not, and if even though I'm a male, I, well, whatever the reason might be, but let's just say that I'm finding I'm not doing very well competing in men's sports, so I'm going to call myself a woman and compete in women's sports instead, or if I just prefer to go into the women's locker room and the women's shower and so on, whatever the reasons may be. But if we're going to say that, then some people are carrying that to their logical conclusion right now and saying, I can identify as an animal. And here in the United States right now, there are kids around here, I don't know how many, that are being called furries. They claim to be cats and dogs and so on. Now, I wonder how, whether they really, really believe this or whether this is a game, but they're acting like they believe it. And we have an interesting account of one of these where this kid was coming home telling his parents he's a cat and refusing to answer to his name and things like that. And finally, the parents said, Well, here's the way we'll handle it. Okay, supper time. No, huh? not you, not you. Kid, the cats don't eat at the dinner table. No, your bowl is right down there under the table. And you'll lap out of your bowl. And then at night, no, time forbid, no No, no, cats in the house at night. You go outside for the night and you catch mice tonight. <laughs> and it was kind of chilly. And, but outside, a few hours later, there's a knock on the door and there's the kid. And he says, I think I'm a boy. <laughs> but sometimes just having people face up to the consequences of this is enough to jar them back into reality. But anyway, so... These are the kinds of things that we deal with at the foundation, and I'm hoping that our brief will have some effect in causing the 6th District to rule in favor of the states in this matter, because not only is this absolutely ridiculous, but it goes way, way beyond anything that is within the federal government's authority. are we on time?
1: We're good. We've still got about uh, nine minutes or so. Oh, Okay. Uh, Colonel, I, I wanted to just ask you, if, if you're seeing this in, in the school system in Alabama, uh, where I live in Idaho right now, there's there's a lot of concern about, are we doing enough to, uh, um, to adjust our, our school district policies, you know, to accommodate uh, transgender kids? And, you know... There was a meeting of the school board in Caldwell, Idaho, a couple of weeks ago, where parents very clearly said, look, we are against this. We don't want young men, even if they identify as young women, in our daughters' restrooms and locker rooms and so forth. And the school board actually shut the meeting down. And they said, well, it's a divisive issue. And, you know, these parents, they, well, basically the parents were accused of being hateful. But the school districts are saying we have to do this because we have a very aggressive um, Office of Civil Rights at the federal level that's insisting that you have to adopt these things. And I'm just curious, are school districts, are you aware of them in in, uh, Alabama, receiving this kind of pressure from the federal level to include, you know, anti-discrimination or accommodation uh, policies for, for transgenderism?
0: Well, I know of at least one school district in Alabama that is trying to impose that policy. And interestingly enough, it's a very conservative and Republican district. Sometimes school boards do not reflect the opinions of their people. Now, whether that school board is doing so because they've received pressure from the federal government to do so, I'm not sure. But, yes, it is happening even here in Alabama. You know, we are... Politically, we're quite a bit like Idaho in some ways. Economically, you may be a bit more of a conservative state than we are. Socially, we may be a little bit more conservative than you are, but we're similar in many respects like that. But many times you find that school boards simply are not representative of the people that elect them. And one of the things that seems to happen many times, and this would be more in your area, we... Don't see this so much down here, but in a number of areas we're seeing people that are moving in. You probably see a lot of this in Idaho, people coming in from California, and after they've made the shambles out of their own state, then they want to move somewhere else and make a shambles, bring the same silly ideas that they have there, bring those ideas to your state as well, and try to impose them there. And many times we find that what they do then is they immediately run for a lot of these lower offices, like town councils, school boards, things like that, and then try to impose these ideas in that way. And I don't know the motives of those in the school board where you are, but yes, now they are receiving this kind of pressure. However, the regulation that I just spoke about that the U.S. Department of Education is trying to impose here, yes, they are trying to impose that, but. If a school district wants to impose it, saying, oh, they're making us do it, that's a Mm -hmm. convenient excuse. But I do think it is very important that parents, and, and taxpayers in general, but especially parents, recognize that the school board is a very, very important position. And that those who serve on that board have a great deal of power as to how they affect the thinking the very soul of your child. And it's important to know who is on the school board, to screen those who are running, and it's important to make sure that we have people who share our values who are gonna run for school board positions. Maybe they're newcomers, maybe they're not, but it's important that we make sure that we fill those positions with people who share our values because you can be sure the other side is trying to fill it with people who do not.
1: Makes sense. I, I have this this hunch, and I, you know, I I can't prove it. Maybe it's just a, a hunch, but it sure seems like the the government run school systems, the public school systems, have become a playground of sort for activists who are doing their very best to uh, poison those young minds against our heritage, against, uh, you know, the, the godly heritage that America has, as well as uh, anything that pertains to individual freedom. You had mentioned, you know, uh, individuals with rights versus uh, some collective where your rights depend on do you belong to the right group, you know, the identity politics. It seems like this is kind of a laboratory where, where these children are being indoctrinated. And uh, and parents, I think, are right to call it out. And if they have to be a little rude at calling it out at times, so be it. Those children are, are their responsibility
0: well you are absolutely right on that and i say that everybody in the district has a duty to be involved in this way even if you don't have children in the system you are still paying taxes to support that system and you are going to have to live with the products of that system and so even if you don't have children in the school system yourself even if say you're you have no children or your children are grown or you're homeschooling or Teaching your children in private schools, even even so, the public schools are your responsibility as well. And yes, we have a duty to stand up in this area. And one of the things, you're absolutely right, I think, that there's always been some bias in the school systems. And at one time, it was probably a Christian bias. You know, originally, education in America was private education in the sense that it was generally at home or run by the churches. And then when private schools began to be set up in the early 1800s, usually they would call themselves a public school in the sense that they were open to the general public. Not in the sense that they were supported by the taxpayers, but in the sense that anybody could attend. if They wanted to pay the tuition, which meant that the school had to deliver and satisfy the parents that they were delivering, or... They wouldn't get paid. But even as we move into the public school system, as we know it today in the late 1800s, even at that time, it seemed like they would use the McGuffey Reader with Christian values and so on. Today, it seems like things are very polarized, and yes, many are using the public school system. They've got a captive audience there, and they're using it to impose a whole different set of values upon this next generation of Americans and American leaders. And that is happening. It's much more true than it was. There was bias when I was there in school, but not nearly like it is today. And certainly we need to stand up on that.
1: So we have a we have just about a minute and a half here, but I'm going to ask you, Colonel, what are things parents could do at home to help instill those values, the the bias <laughs> that would keep them close to God, treasuring liberty and and uh, being individuals who know their rights and and would be willing to to stand for them
0: well for one thing i'd say find out what is being taught not only look at the textbooks but look at the teachers manuals many times the teachers manuals will say things that the texts themselves do not and most teachers probably are not ideologues who are trying to indoctrinate your children they're just following the textbook and the teacher's manual and teaching what it says to do to go along and get along secondly I would suggest that you get with like-minded parents, maybe through your church or through other churches and civic groups and get with like-minded parents. And make sure that at least somebody from your group is attending every school board meeting so they know what is going on. And if there's an issue coming up that's going to be important, then you attend in Mass and be ready to speak out.
1: Yep. And, and you'll speak much more effectively if you know what you stand for and aren't just running, running on pure emotion. Absolutely. All right, we are coming up on our break here. When we come back, Colonel, what's uh, what are we going to discuss in the next uh, segment?
0: A- Something closely related, critical race theory.
1: Critical race theory. Very nice. We'll be back in just a few moments. back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are here with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, I am ready to hear your take on critical race theory.
0: Critical race theory. Okay. Back when I was in law school, back in the 1960s, I probably had a few professors who believed in some of the concepts of critical race theory, but I never heard the term. In fact, we really never heard the term until probably as we move into the 1980s and the average student who was in law school at the time wouldn't hear it probably until a couple decades after that. It was something professors talked about among themselves and they might have injected some of the concepts into their classrooms, but as a brazen philosophy itself by that term, you wouldn't see that used much until very recently and really until the general public until we had the riots in the streets and so on of the summer of 2020, the media didn't even use the term. And then they suddenly started using the term, but usually without defining it. And people watching the news would hear about critical race theory and wokeism and so on without knowing what it meant, possibly because the media commentators didn't know what it meant either. Sometimes they just seemed to pick up on terms and use them without really thinking about their meaning, so it seems to me at least. But anyway, the term certainly is part of the public vocabulary a great deal right now, but even now, I think a lot of people don't really know what it means. So what I'd like to do here is talk about what exactly critical race theory is and then talk about some of the ways we can combat it. And first of all, It has its roots in Marxism, at least Marxism in a form, and Marxism, as we saw it with Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto in 1948, and Das Kapital somewhat later, and so on, basically said that the world is divided into the rich and the poor, economic oppressors, and economically oppressed. In fact, the manifesto begins with the history of the world is the history of the class struggle. And that the oppressed, who are the workers, or possibly also those who are unable to obtain work, the oppressed need to rise up and throw off the oppressors, the capitalists, the employers, and so on. The rich, although they seem to define rich as anybody who isn't totally destitute, But, anyway, they're to throw them off, and then they'll become the rulers themselves. And, as it is sometimes, anyway, it's been said that under capitalism, man oppresses his fellow man. Under communism, it's the other way around. In other words, many times all communism would do is create a new class of oppressors. But... Then as we move into the 1930s, a new school of thought develops that we call cultural Marxism, and I would suggest critical race theory might better be called cultural Marxism because that really summarizes what it is better, but cultural Marxism comes out of what's called the Frankfurt School in Germany, and it spread there in the 1930s and 40s to Switzerland and other parts of Europe and to the Western Hemisphere as well. Cultural Marxism essentially said that, yes, Marxism is essentially correct about this being a struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed, but they define it way too narrowly in terms of economic class. It is not only that the rich are exploiting the poor, but we see exploitation in many other areas as well. We see whites oppressing blacks, We see men oppressing women. We see many other categories of oppression. Religious, too. And, well, Christians, well, Christians oppress pretty much everybody. And, anyway, so, in fact, I'd say Christianity and Christian values and Christian civilization are the real ultimate target of cultural Marxism and of critical race theory. Anyway, so... To understand what critical race theory and cultural Marxism are all about, then, several things we need to understand are, first of all, the term woke. Now, we see a similar term in Scripture, "Awaken," that you are to arise, you are to be awakened. Sometimes that is used in the sense of rising out of sleep. Sometimes it's in the sense of becoming conscious of what's around you. Sometimes with the sense of being inspired to action on behalf of the Lord. But anyway, so the term woke is kind of a corruption of that. And there are many who will say that really at base, cultural Marxism and critical race theory are forms of religion. Distorted forms of religion, but religion nevertheless. And... After all, scripture itself tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and presents himself in a very attractive-sounding religion. But anyway, so wokeism, then, is to awaken people to the truth about oppression. And as far as to how this is done and what the truth about oppression is, we need to understand next that Truth is something we understand in terms of experience. You don't understand oppression by going to school and majoring in oppressionology or something like that. (laughs) You don't understand it by reading about it. You understand oppression by being oppressed. Because truth is subjective. We learn it through experience. Okay, if truth is subjective, we learn it through experience, and the truth is that we are oppressed. How do we know about oppression? By being oppressed. And so we know about being oppressed not by what we ourselves have experienced as individuals, but by belonging to identity groups. And there are oppressor identity groups and oppressed identity groups. Men are an oppressor identity group. Women are oppressed. The rich are oppressors. The poor are oppressed. Whites are oppressors. Blacks, and usually Hispanics, and Native Americans are oppressed. Asians and Jews They could be oppressors or oppressed, depending on the particular circumstances, or depending on what what fits the narrative at the time better, but they're somewhere in between. But here you have oppressor groups and oppressed groups in terms of race. Citizens, oppressed non-citizens. Able people oppress the disabled. And so on. And you can invent more and more oppressor classes and oppressed classes, the more you can think of it. Anyway, so what oppressed group or or what identity group do you belong to? Well, as I've just named all these groups, you're probably thinking, actually, I belong to several. And you might be thinking, I belong to several oppressor groups and several oppressed groups. So which am I? Let's say if you're a, a white female... Well, automatically, we know you belong to one oppressor group, you're white, but you also belong to one oppressed group, you're a woman. In fact, for men who are listening here, your wife automatically has more authority to speak in this area than you do because she belongs to at least one oppressed group just by being a woman. Gays are oppressed by straights. Transgenders are oppressed by those who are not transgender. The rich rich oppress the poor and so on. And like I say... Christians pretty much oppress everybody. But put all this together, and the authority that you have to speak out about oppression is based on the identity groups to which you belong. The more oppressed identity groups you belong to, the more you've experienced oppression, and the more authority you have to speak about oppression. The more oppressor groups you belong to, the less authority you have. For example, if you are a black, female, non-Christian, indigent, non-citizen, and, let's say, lesbian, you belong to a lot of oppressed groups. And so you have great authority to speak about what it's like to be oppressed because you know about oppression. You've experienced it even if you lived in an ivory palace all your life, still, by belonging to those identity groups, you have experienced oppression. If you are a white male, and if you are not indigent, as I say, they often define indigent as anybody who isn't, or they define rich as anybody who isn't just totally destitute, but... If you are straight in your sexual identity, if you're a citizen, and, oh no, above all, if you are a Christian, then you belong to all of these oppressor groups. You have no idea what it is like to be oppressed, and therefore, you have no authority to speak. That's why we use this term intersectionality. And that term intersectionality refers to how these groups intersect with each other. White female, for example, two, one oppressed and one oppressor group intersecting with you and so on with all these other categories. And they make up new categories for this all the time, but with all these categories then, you use intersectionality to determine exactly where you are at the authority level as far as your authority to speak. Okay, so woke then, is becoming aware of the injustices and the oppression that is going on around us. And as we work for social justice, we define social justice in terms of transferring wealth, transferring political power, transferring influence and the like, from an oppressed or an oppressor identity group to an oppressed identity group. Justice, in this view, social justice, and you hear that term and you think, who could be against social justice? Mm -hmm. But social justice in this sense is not in the sense that we think about justice in a court where we look to the evidence and the law and decide whether somebody did or did not commit a crime and is or is not guilty. Rather, social justice is not what do you do Not what are the facts, but what identity groups do you belong to and if you belong to oppressor identity groups It is our duty as a court or as a legislature or whatever to try to take as much power and wealth and influence from you as we possibly can and Give it to other identity groups the question in court then if you believe in this kind of theory is not Did this defendant commit the crime? The question in court then is How can we render a decision here that it is going to advance the cause of social justice? One other concept we probably need to understand here, and that is what we call zero sum game. Now, by zero sum game, this is a view of Marxist economics, which is utterly simplistic and inaccurate that there is a set amount of wealth, and therefore, if you gain wealth, you do so only by taking it away from other people. For example, if I earn a dollar, that means somebody else is one dollar poorer. If I become a thousand dollars richer, somebody else is a thousand dollars poorer, or a thousand people or one dollar poorer. I can only become wealthy by exploiting other people. The fact is, We don't have a zero-sum game. We create wealth. If somebody invents a product and decides that he's going to produce that product, sets up a factory, hires people, gives them jobs and so on, makes this product, and then he convinces the public that they need this product, and so he sells it to them and makes money. They get a product they didn't have before that improves their lives. Well, that is not simply redistributing wealth, that is creating new wealth. And when you see a transfer, an economic transfer in the United States, that economic transfer, if it's a completely arm's length transaction which both parties enter in knowledgeably and voluntarily, then it's a transaction in which both parties benefit getting something they want more than what they had. Classic example of this, We had horses when we lived, when we were growing, raising a family here. When our daughter went off to college, we decided we would sell her horse. I still had mine, but she didn't need hers anymore, and we could use the money for tuition. So we put her horse up for sale. Thousand dollars we asked, and a rancher came around and said that he could use that horse. He thought he could make that horse into a, a good working horse for the ranch and make it even into a cutting horse, he said. Anyway, so. We bargained back and forth. I was asking $1,000. He offered $800. We finally settled at $900. Now, why was I willing to give up not, or give up that horse for $900? Because I needed the $900 more than I needed the horse. Why was he willing to give up $900? Because he needed the horse more than he needed the 900 And so each of us parted with something we needed less, and gained something that we needed more. Each of us came out better from the transaction. And I'm hoping what he was able to do is to take that horse and train that horse to make it a cutting horse. That's the kind of horse that you can use to actually cut cattle out of a herd and so on. They are utterly amazing what they can do. If he did that, he increased the value of that horse by thousands of dollars, and he's entitled to profit from it. Point is, when you make an economic exchange, both parties benefit. When you buy a loaf of bread, You do so because you need the bread more than you need the dollars. The merchant sells you the bread because he needs the dollars more than he needs the loaf. Both parties benefit. Anyway, that's the way economics really works. Well, let's move on in the closing minutes to talk about how do we counter the movement here for critical race theory. First of all, you're dealing with people, if they're really thoroughly into the movement, you are dealing with people who don't really think according to logic and evidence that much. If you want to bring them into Christian theology, well, in my apologetics class, I can give them the classical arguments for the existence of God, the argument from design and so on, many of which I think are very logical, sensible arguments. But a person who isn't motivated by logic probably doesn't care. If I give him the evidence... For the resurrection of Christ, and that evidence from the scriptures is, is overwhelming. Again, if he's not motivated by evidence, he doesn't care. If I give a woke person statistics, when that person is telling me, well, white policemen terrorize blacks, if I give them the statistics about the relative numbers of crimes committed by whites versus blacks and about the numbers of whites that are shot by police versus blacks that are shot by police and so on. I can present some very convincing statistics on this. It's probably not going to persuade a person who isn't motivated by experience or by statistics. They're motivated by experience. Part of what we need to do is to enter into long-term dialogue, to enter into relationships, friendships with people in this movement, and then we become part of their experience. And then they hear, all well, white people are racist. Oh, no, Brian is a friend of mine. He's not a racist, so that simply isn't true. You become part of their experience, and you can get into their way of thinking them. Part of it, too, is to emphasize that from the Scriptures, the Scriptures are very clear on this, that justice is a matter of doing right for the individual. We come to God as individuals. We have rights as individuals. The Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Not all identity groups, but all men, meaning all people. Anyway, so understanding that justice is not a matter of transferring wealth from one identity group to another. Justice is a matter of looking to the facts in the individual case. And yes, there are situations in which a black man may do wrong to a white man, or in which a woman may do wrong to a man, and vice versa. And the scriptures say that judges are to judge impartially. They're not to take bribes and oppress the poor. At the same time, the scripture says, you thou shalt not countenance a poor man in his cause. In other words, the poor man is entitled to equal justice. But he is not entitled to favoritism just because he is poor. And sometimes to demonstrate to people, well, that's not the way you normally think. How do you apply it in this area? For example, you say racism is wrong. Why? Is it always wrong? Well, how about slavery? Is slavery always wrong? Well, yes, slavery is always wrong. Well, what about way back in the early 1800s in the United States when it was an institution in the South, protected by law in the South, and to some extent protected by law in the northern states as well? Now, when it was protected by law back in those days, was it wrong then? Oh yes, wrong all the time. Those laws were horrible. They were wrong. Well, how can you say that the law of a state or the law of a nation is wrong? Unless you say there is a higher morality above the law of man. And what higher morality can there be besides the law of man, the law of the government? What higher morality can there be other than the moral law of God? Now, do you recognize there is such a thing as this higher moral law of God? If you do, then what other moral laws does God have? And if you recognize that equality is something that we all have, we're all entitled to equality, why? Did Darwin say all men are equal? No, he didn't. Darwin talked about selection, survival of the fittest, and so on. He even talks about superior races over others. We are equal because we are created equal by God. Now, is that? did you have any other basis besides that for saying we're equal? If you're gonna say that we are equal because we're created by God, what does that say about the role God plays in our discussion? Now we've got a whole new discussion. Point of the matter is, sometimes you can get people to look at their own arguments and see how taken to their own conclusions, they either lead nowhere or they lead to absurd conclusions. And then you can open their minds to considering what God's word really says but we certainly need to stand up on these things. We need to speak out, as the scriptures say, talking about being woke, but not woke, awakened. And as Paul says in Ephesians, where he is citing from Isaiah, he says, wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And churches need to stand up for biblical truth here. Too many pastors either don't understand critical race theory or buy into some of themselves. And there's parishioners and the young people in their church either don't learn anything about it or else they learn wrong. But we are told that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, Jude 3. And... We are told that we are to speak out to the world in these matters as well. As Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 1, 14, 8, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? Let's be sure that not only in the church, but as churchmen outside the church, that we sound the trumpet and give a certain sound, and people will rally
1: around us. Well, that sounds like sound advice. Because right now there's a lot of people sowing confusion and uh, and it seems like garnering a lot of power in the wake of that confusion. Tell about some of the confusion that you saw there in Idaho just recently. Well, uh, we're, we're down to just a few seconds here, but uh, uh, one of the leading proponents of critical race theory, Ibram Kendi uh, Ibr- X. I don't know if that's his real name. I don't think it is. I think that's an adopted name, but he is one of the foremost proponents of critical race theory, came and spoke recently at uh, Boise State University, and there's controversy over whether or not public dollars were used to, uh, to fund his appearance here. And, you know, I don't think his message was nearly as uniting as, as perhaps it could or should have been, but...
0: Basically, he said that we are all racist from birth and that yep. the only way to confront racism is by new racism.
1: Isn't that right? Exactly. By the way, your explanation of critical race theory and cultural Marxism, one of the best I've ever heard.